Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture reading today is Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helped, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. Please be seated. Thank you so much for the reading of the scripture. This text assures us that if we know our Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer needing to carry the weight of our sin. Jesus Christ has borne that weight for us and its penalty. Jesus is our high priest. That is to mean something for us. It definitely means something from the book of Leviticus and now in the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ takes our sin and he fully answers the struggle and deficiency. He is our present help. He is our older bigger, and better brother. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer need to struggle with your anxiety and your fear. Jesus is your helper. He is the captain of your salvation. He will lead you into his rest. We need not fear of falling short. God shall take us all the way. That is what Hebrews chapter 2 and the entire book of Hebrews assures us of. When we look at Hebrews chapter 2, we see it in light of Hebrews chapter 1. We know that in chapter 1, we have the setting forth of his deity. We know in chapter 2, as we will see, he is setting forth his humanity. In chapter 1, he is better in his revelation than the prophets and the angels. He is the culmination of all that God speaks of. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, the accent is on his humanity. It celebrates our salvation And then chapter 3, verse 1 says, Consider him. In light of the fact that Jesus Christ is both God and man, consider him. 
It is by means of his incarnation, what we see in chapter 2, God's redemptive program finds its ultimate expression. When we weigh who he is with what is done, there can be no other conclusion than the awe-inspiring arrest of our affection by the one who alone is worthy. Because of who he is in chapter 1, because of who he is in chapter 2, you and I can know that we are indeed saved. There are two thoughts or ideas that collide in chapter 2, two elements. The first is that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. We see that in verse 6. Now, the Son of Man, as a title, identifies who is Messiah. Jesus is identified as the Son of Man, and he identifies himself as the Son of Man in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, has inherited authority. We know that from Daniel 7, Matthew 26, and John chapter 5. And as the Son of Man, Jesus is humanity's merciful healer, Matthew chapter 9. We know that he is the singular object of faith, and he is the ultimate judge, Matthew 25. Jesus Christ is identified as Messiah. He is fully God, and now in chapter 2, we'll see that he is fully man. The second element that comes to the forefront in chapter 2 is that Jesus Christ takes on human nature. That's what Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 12, assures us of. He emptied himself, he took upon himself, he added to himself human nature. And thus we read statements like verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us his siblings, brothers and sisters. And verse 17, he was made like his brothers and sisters in every respect in order that he might function fully as our high priest. But this duality of God-man is imperative to the Bible and to us as sinners For he must be fully God and fully man in order to be the founder of our salvation, which we read of in Hebrews chapter 2. This is a common thread or theme throughout the New Testament. I'll cite only 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. It says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Father, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 set that forth. And verse 6 of 1 Timothy says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 1 and 2 assures us of what 1 Timothy chapter 2 is telling. The historical church, in considering this idea, concluded with the Chalcedonian Creed. I'll read only a portion of it, but that's why creeds are important. We're learning that in church history this morning at 9 o'clock. It says, we then following the Holy Fathers, those who have preceded us, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, God and man, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body in substance with us, according to the manhood in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. It is only because Jesus is both fully God and fully man that he can, as our high priest, which is a dominant idea within the book of Hebrews, but as our high priest, he offers a sacrifice that answers God's justice and stops God's wrath. That's why the word later on used is propitiation. Jesus Christ became who we are in order that we might become who he is through adoption and heir. We are a joint heir with Jesus. It is because he functions as our high priest. He not only brings the offering, but he is the offering. That language is so important. 
and the fact that Jesus is the fully God and fully man, he forms, he is for us a mediator, and he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What is interesting in Hebrews chapter 2, and these are all themes and topics that we could tease out, but I'm wanting us to see how we come to this conclusion based on the structure of Hebrews chapter 2. But we must see how God's plan, God's plan, involved his son taking on human nature, identifying with humanity and thus temporarily becoming lower than the angels. That's the language of our passage in verses 6 and 7. God's plan involved his son suffering and dying. We see that in verses 9 and 10. For it was fitting that the founder of their salvation would be perfected or completed through suffering. But God's plan involved the son suffering and dying. God's plan involved his son becoming a justice-answering, wrath-stopping, death-destroying, fear-obliterating sacrifice. He is a ceaseless intercessor and merciful mediator for his people. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus does so that you and I no longer are fearful of death. We're not enslaved to death. The devil's power over us has been broken. But we see all of this in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, and that matters, that matters. Who Jesus is in his person and work matters. In this passage, we will read that Jesus Christ is described as our substitute. He tastes death for everyone. He is our captain or founder of our salvation. He is our sanctifier. He sanctifies sinners. He is our brother. He is not ashamed to call us his older brother. He is our victor. He destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He is our deliverer. He delivers us who were subject to lifelong slavery. He is our high priest. He is our mediator. He is our helper. He is able to help us. And why? Because he is fully God and fully man. He mediates in our behalf before the Father. He is our high priest. And he does for us what we could have never done for ourselves. This is Jesus. And who he is and what he does matters right now where we are at. I'm wanting us to see that from our present passage. But before moving further, let us have a word of prayer. Our Father, today we are humbled by the weight of this extraordinary Christ. We ask for enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would cause us to see our sin and then cause us to see our Savior, Jesus. Help us to fall on him as our great high priest. Help us to see how his death renders powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Help us to see how his death frees us who through fear of death were subject to slavery all our lives. Father, this passage say, is saying something to us today. Thus, we ask that we would bend our ears toward its truth and may it truly change us forever. May it impact us and cause us to see just how incredible Jesus is and how incredible what he has done for us and how it changes us. We ask this in his name. Amen. I've already said a mouthful. I've already laid it out quite heavy. But how does the passage support that idea? The first thing we see within the text, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, is that there are two parallel passages within the text. And I'll, I'll tell you structurally how it plays out. Verses 5 through 9 are saying essentially the same thing as verses 10 through 13. They say it in different ways, but they say the same thing. And then what they say are four primary ideas. 
And then what happens in verses 14 through 18 is the therefore. The therefore, or in conclusion, in light of what we have just read in 5 through 13, we have these implications. And there are two therefores. The first one is in verse 14. The second one is in verse 17. So as we read this passage, the author is building a case. He is encouraging people who are being persecuted, who will perhaps be imprisoned, and who will maybe even be killed. And what he says here is an encouragement to them. That's why when you get to the end and it says, for because he himself also suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what they and us are going through and he can help us. Why? Because he is a merciful and faithful high priest. But you have these two parallel arguments taking place inside the chapter and they are equal in what they have to say. But in verses 5 through 9, Jesus is set forth as a second Adam, the first Adam being Adam. And now Jesus is identified with humanity, and Jesus thus has dominion over creation. And and we'll tease this out in just a moment. But as the second Adam, he also suffers and dies on behalf of his people. Now, verses 6 through 8 inside the section cites Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, which we had read earlier, You have an already not yet idea. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And that psalm reminds them of Genesis 1. Mankind, humanity, was given dominion over the earth. Jesus, as taking on humanity, as the second Adam, has dominion over the earth. But what Jesus does is then, in in becoming human, is now lower than the angels themselves. But what you see in Psalm 8 is that there's something left unfinished and or unknown. That plays out in the New Testament. Jesus became like the first Adam in order that he would become creation's heir. And we see that. That's what we read of. But what we note in Psalm 8 and then now in this passage is that Jesus Christ is our race representative. He has become like us. He identifies us as his siblings. He is our federal head, our covenant representative. And Jesus does not represent the angelic realm. He's not come to help the offspring of Abraham, he has come to help us. This is what he does. He rules over the angelic realm, and that's what we see. But you have these parallel passages, 5 through 9, 10 through 13. 10 through 13 says essentially the same thing, but cites Psalm 22, where Jesus openly identifies himself as being part of humanity. He is the second Adam, and he does suffer thus completing or perfecting God's purpose for him as the sacrifice. And, and we'll note this, but what I'm really wanting us to initially see is that these two paragraphs, 5 through 9 and then 10 through 13, are essentially saying the same thing. They say it in different ways, but they're essentially saying the same thing. Now, what are they saying? And that's really a primary idea of the passage. What are they saying? There's four things that are being said inside this text. The first thing that the text argues is that humanity, Adam's race, the offspring of Abraham, unlike the angels, has dominion over the world. We see this in verses 5 through 8 and verse 10. Notice the language. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but to humans, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, and it's really speaking of humanity or the son of man, that you care for him, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now, it's interesting when you read the Psalm, Psalm 8, you really are reading of humanity. Now, when Hebrews 2 cites Psalm 8, it's speaking of Jesus. So you have this idea of an already Psalm 8, not yet Jesus. Jesus fulfills ultimately what's being described in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a shadow of which Jesus is the substance. Psalm 8 speaks of humanity being creation's heir. Well, Jesus is the appointed heir, the only begotten son, and he is our race representative. It will be seen throughout how Jesus does for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And we see that the entire creation is in subjection to him. And we'll note how he is currently ruling over all things. Everything is under his control. And yet what we see currently is chaos. But one day that full control will be completely manifested. So the first thing we see in these two parallel or equal paragraphs is that humanity has dominion over the world. That's the first and primary point being made within the passage. The second thing we see within the paragraph is that Jesus, as the second Adam, Jesus, because he is now fully identified with humanity, also has dominion over the world. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So the first part or first argument is simply this. Mankind has dominion over the world. We know that from Genesis 1. Jesus is now a part of mankind. He took on human nature. He identifies openly with his brothers and sisters. And Jesus, as human, has dominion over the world. Just as they did and do, so does he. And what's equally interesting when you read this, it says that Jesus Christ has complete control over these things. Notice verse 8. Right after the quote, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus specific, he left nothing outside his control. The Father left nothing outside his control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we speak of God ruling. We speak of God reigning. We speak of his absolute authority. We say that God is sovereign, and indeed he is. And yet, if he is sovereign, if he is controlling everything, why does it look as if the wheels have truly come off the bus? We had a situation inside our home, my wife and I, and I'm praying that night, as I often do, God, if you're sovereign, I'd surely like a bone. You know, just throw me a bone. And, and uh, sure enough, I was, I was saying it more in desperation, but sure enough, he threw us a bone and solved the problem. But God is in control. And yet it says that there's nothing left outside his control. But at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't look like he's in control, but the text assures us that he is. The passage is openly identifying Jesus Christ as human. And it begins by saying humanity was given dominion over all the earth. Jesus is now taken on human nature and he has dominion over all the earth. But as a consequence of that, and this is where it starts changing, the third argument brought within the text is our Lord's humiliation that despite having dominion, he humbles himself through suffering. He's now made a little lower than the angels through becoming human, but by becoming human, taking on human nature, he now suffers and he dies. This was a big problem for the first century church and it's still a big problem for many. 
Docetism says that Jesus Christ only appeared to be human, for it was impossible for God to suffer. It is impossible for God to die. And we're going, yes, we understand the tension. And yet the text says that Jesus Christ took on human nature, Philippians chapter 2 and elsewhere. And yet by becoming human, he could be for us what we could not be for ourselves. He represents us before God. He mediates. But despite the fact that he has dominion over, he lowers himself by becoming human. And by becoming human, he can now suffer death. And the truly startling thrust of Hebrews, and this is something that I hope we we never tire of. We read of these glorious things in chapter 1 concerning his deity, but the one who is God is now going to suffer and die in behalf of us. I hope we sense the incompatibility of that idea, that the nature of Jesus and the contrasting with his voluntary, substitutionary, penal-satisfying death. In the incarnation, God through Jesus restores what was lost and will bring the story back to its original state. And it is through this humiliation and his ultimate exaltation that he wins the victory. It's not just that he suffered and died, but he was raised again and now he ascended and sits at the Father's right hand. He suffered and now he is crowned with glory. Notice how this passage reads when you look at verse 9, the latter part. It says, I'll begin with verse 9 to first. But we see him who for a little while, taking on the nature of, of man, was made lower than the angels, even though he has dominion over creation, namely Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that for this purpose, by taking on human nature, by suffering and dying, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what Jesus did. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete. He completes the mission entrusted to him through suffering. It was the Father's will that the Son would be bruised, that the Son would suffer. And his suffering and his crowning are set in contrast, and one results in the other. It is because he suffered that he is now crowned with glory. His suffering and obedience are intentional. They have purpose. There's a reason why Jesus suffered and died. There's a reason why Jesus lived a complete, perfect, law-abiding life, and that he suffered and died. Why did he do that? Well, he did it in, for us, and by doing it for us, you and I can be saved. In Hebrews 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10, it says that Jesus Christ was perfect through suffering. We're thinking, well, wasn't Jesus perfect? Wasn't he already complete? The intent of that statement is that the word perfect comes from this idea of completing or of reaching a goal. And the idea is that Jesus reaches the goal for which he came through suffering. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save his people from sin. And his suffering is a part of that process. It could not have happened any other way. And thus he is perfected or completed. He fulfilled the mission assigned him by God. This is what he has done. So you have this statement or this idea that, that humanity has dominion over creation. Jesus becomes human and he has dominion over creation. But despite that, he lowers himself by taking on humanity and then suffering And dying, he is perfected through suffering, and the glory follows the suffering. 
And then the fourth argument within the text is that his suffering, his suffering has significance. His suffering has purpose. Why has he undergone this? Well, he becomes through that the leader, founder, or captain of our salvation. He leads the way into the very presence of God. He becomes for us our substitute. And, and one of the problems that we have when you teach this is that it becomes white noise for us. We really don't absorb what's being said. But Jesus Christ, as our faithful high priest, not only brings the offering, but is the offering. He takes our place. That means he is going to face what we rightly and justly deserve. That's what he is going to do. And in his suffering, he tasted death for and sanctified sinners. He is our substitute. He takes for us the judgment that was rightly ours. And as a result of the Father's work and the Son's submission, Jesus is able to call his people brothers and sisters. He openly testifies to their status as brothers and sisters. Now, we know when we read Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18, that 5 through 9 is a thought, and then 10 through 13 is a thought. Those two paragraphs or ideas are in parallel, they're equal. The four statements that each one reiterates, perhaps in different ways, but saying the same thing, is that humanity, from Psalm 8, has dominion over creation. And Jesus, taking on human nature, has dominion over creation. But as a human, he can now suffer and die. And not only does he suffer and die, the third point, but the fourth is that suffering and death have significance, have import. He does it for us. He becomes our substitute. And this is then the therefore. What are the consequences? And this is really the, the massive takeaway from the text. We know that Jesus Christ is both God and man. We know that he is our mediator. He is our high priest. And we know that he brings an offering before the Father because it's using the language, it's using the imagery, the symbolism of Leviticus of the sacrificial system. And notice now the passage, and I'm going to read it for us, 14 through 18. Since therefore... And we know that the therefore is based on what we have just read. These four primary points repeated twice for the purpose of emphasis. Because what we have just read is true, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, as a human he could die, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So we've just read 5 through 13. What's the big idea? What's the takeaway? Well, therefore, because he has done what he did, he has, through his death, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil for us, because of Christ, is a defeated foe. And he has delivered those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. There's two primary ideas in this first section, 14, 15, and 16. We see it. Here's why he did what he has done, so that he would destroy the devil, and so that he might deliver his people from the fear of death's grip. In the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the devil and all of God's enemies were defeated. And, and I would encourage you to look at this passage and just allow yourself to marinate in it 
As a consequence, he delivers those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has freed us. We need not fear. Now remember to whom he writes. He writes to a people who are persecuted. He writes to a people who are perhaps imprisoned and maybe even killed. And they could potentially be living in fear. And as a consequence of that fear, they have been in slavery. And Jesus is the one who frees them from that fear. They no longer have to worry or be anxious or fearful. The second section, 17 and 18, gives us the second therefore. As a consequence of who Jesus is. Here is why he did what he did, so that, verse 17... He had to be made like us in every respect, which indeed he was. We'll know in Hebrews 4. He was tempted like us in every area except without sin. But he was just like us. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And as a faithful and merciful high priest, in his role, he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. And the second thing is, as one who has suffered, as one who has been tempted, remember to whom he writes. He writes to a people who are being persecuted. They are potentially going to be imprisoned and they might even be killed. They're tempted to turn back to Judaism. They're tempted to live rather than die. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Tempted. But he did not turn back. He completed the mission. He was perfected through the suffering. They're tempted. But notice this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And remember to whom he writes. He's calling them, in your moment of temptation, in your moment of turning back, remember Jesus as your high priest is there to help you. He's there to help you. And there are two ideas within the text that I think are super important. The first is the word propitiation. I've often said I love the word propitiation. I love the way it is said. I love the syllables. Propitiation. But I love more what it means. Propitiation is when Jesus Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. And as a consequence of his perfect life and now substitutionary sacrificial death... He answers the justice of God. God is a holy and just God, and we have violated his holiness. We have violated his justice. And Christ, as our mediating high priest, is not only the one who brings the offering, but he is the offering. He is the God-man. And as the God-man, he answers the justice of God. That's why in Romans 8, 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation, because Jesus answers the justice of God. And he stops the wrath of God. That's why we say God is no longer wrathful with us. We will never, ever face the wrath of God. And why? Because Jesus has done it for us. He is our high priest. He is our substitute. Those words have meaning. And I'm wanting you to feel the weight of that meaning. I can't cause you to feel it. But the Spirit of God can, and I trust he will. Jesus Christ, as our high priest, brings an offering which indeed is himself. We'll see that because it's a once-for-all offering. But the offering he brings answers the justice of God and stops the wrath of God. 
Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an amen. This is piles of good things. But then secondly, he's tempted. Jesus was tempted to stop trusting God. Matthew 4, Matthew 26. Father, if there is any other way, I want plan B. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. His audience is tempted to stop trusting God, to stop trusting Jesus. Who is there interceding in your behalf? Who is your advocate? His name is Jesus. Right now, as you are tempted to stop trusting, Jesus Christ is interceding in your behalf. He knows you are weak. He knows you will fail. But he is mediating in your behalf. And he is representing you before the Father. And I'm saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for speaking in my behalf. Like his offspring, Jesus also was tempted to abandon the purpose of God. But Jesus held fast in faith and carried forward God's purpose, thus dying the cross death. What do we do? Where do we go? Jesus Christ in his role as the great high priest renders powerless the one who held power in bondage, that is the devil. So that death, which was intended by him, who was a murderer from the beginning to be the final ruin of mankind, becomes the instrument of their exaltation and endless glory. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the victor. The New Testament record is emphatic as to the efficacious or powerful nature of our Lord's redemptive activity. That's why, you know, we talk about being a Christ-exalting, word-centered fellowship. We are a gospel-centric fellowship. We are a cross-centric fellowship. Because we don't tire of saying the word propitiation. We don't tire of saying the word redemption. We don't tire of saying these great theological words where Jesus Christ is our substitute. I know your life because I know my life. Your life and my life are lives of struggle. But thank God we have a high priest who speaks in our behalf before the Father. And the Father says, welcome. Welcome to a throne of grace. And at this throne you will find the help you need. Welcome. You say, Lord, I am miserable. Lord, I am a failure. And he says, I know. But that's why we have Jesus. Listen to the triumph of our mighty Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Colossians 2. And, and this can be repeated throughout the New Testament. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having it canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, I'm adding, by way of substitution. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is unveiled as a conquering king, and this is the power of the gospel. This Jesus is our high priest. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And it's not simply a title we ascribe to him. We don't say, well, he's done a good thing. It's for me he has done it. He is this for us. Because he has proven to be a merciful and faithful high priest, he can make propitiation 
Jesus Christ alone satisfies the justice of God against the sinner. His work enables him to come to our aid in the one area we are incapable of rectifying, and that is our salvation. Every attempt on our part to subtract from or add to his work is an assault against who he is and what he has done. It's an assault. It's an insult. So what are the implications of this passage? Well, he became what we are in order that he might defeat sin and death and give salvation and life to his people. He has done this for us. He is the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve and revealed through Abraham. He is the promised seed. And he became what we are in order that we might become what he is, a son and an heir. That's why as many as call on him, to them gave he the privilege of becoming sons of God. And we are joint heirs with Jesus. Jesus is our substitute. He is our captain, our sanctifier, our brother, our victor, our deliverer, our high priest, our mediator, and our helper. This is who he is for us. Jesus is our intercessor. We began the study with a simple statement. If you know Jesus, you no longer need to carry the weight of your sin. He has carried it for you. You still sin. You still feel its impact. There's an intrinsic demerit to sin. Choices have consequences. But the weight of that, the penalty of that, the power of that has been placed on Christ. Jesus is our high priest. He takes our sin and he fully answers the struggle and deficiency. In your fight against sin, Jesus is your older, bigger, and better brother. Many of you have heard that I am the youngest of five boys. And I don't know if you can fathom the idea, but I was an absolute squirrel. I got in trouble without even trying. I was always the one making the last comment in the classroom. I got through school based on charm alone. Some would say I was a problem child. And I often got in trouble. And my older, bigger, and better brothers often came to my aid, and they solved my problem. Well, Jesus is that for us. He's our older, bigger, and better brother. And he steps in and saves us in our time of need. And if you know Jesus... You no longer need to struggle with your anxiety and fear. What does the future hold? From this point, it looks like I'm just going to get old and die unless Jesus comes back. And that getting old and dying thing can be pretty hard. But I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be fearful. Jesus is your helper. He is the captain, the founder of your salvation. He will lead you into his rest. And you need not fear of falling short. God shall take you all the way. He is your high priest. And he has done for you and me what we could never have done for ourselves. And we want to feel the weight of Hebrews 2. And we want to walk away saying, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Please stand with me now as we close in prayer. Our Father, regardless of our demographic, we are weary of the struggle. Sometimes it is simply overwhelming and as we age, that sense of being overwhelmed only increases. 
We are less resilient. We are weak. The younger demographic is equally so. They just don't realize it yet. But Father, we are weary of the apparent non-tangible nature of the Christian life. You know, we become weary of walking by faith because we want sight. One day we will have it, but right now it is a walk of faith. So we read a passage like Hebrews 2, and and it tells us what the, the real score is. Grant to us, then, the reality of the passage. May we have a wisdom we do not possess naturally. May we have a power we do not possess naturally. May we fall completely into the interceding arms of Jesus. May we understand how he mediates for us before the Father. May we know how the power of the devil has been stripped from him and that we are free from enslavement to sin and death. Grant to us the joy of simply knowing you. May the Holy Spirit continue to shine through us in very powerful and tangible ways so that when people see us, they see Jesus. May we rest walking in faith knowing this is the path you have laid before us. May we not grow weary in the doing of good. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.